Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Tuesday, April 29, 1997. And the Auckland Warriors sat in ninth place after a loss to the North Queensland Cowboys, the only team below them on the Super League ladder. The Warriors board decided enough was enough, and coach John Money was sacked for the first time in an illustrious coaching career. The change at the top, however, was the least of their worries, in a tumultuous season of on-field disappointment and off-field disarray. This is part one of the Telstra Cup, the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. This is our Super League 1997 season recap. So I always really like these season recap chapters, so I'm looking forward to getting into it. Yeah, bringing back some wonderful memories. Well, yeah, it would be for you. For me, this is completely new. You know, (laughs) as mentioned several times, I staged a season-long boycott, so... Uh, most of this I'm discovering for the first time in the research process. <laughs> I was just going to qualify wonderful as in semi-wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, going through what we've got planned for this chapter, wonderful may be stretching it, but there's certainly <laughs> a lot of points of interest over the course of the season. So this is going to be a domestic Super League season recap. So we're not going to touch on the Tri-Series. We're not going to touch on the World Club Challenge. They will both be covered down the track. What we're going to look at in this is just how the season unfolded, and we're going to do that through uh, the seasons of each club. Now, we're not doing one episode per club because uh, if we add the ARL to the mix, that would mean 22 recap episodes for clubs, and you know, I'm quite keen on finishing this series within the 2020s. <laughs> So basically the way I've structured it is I've found what I could, took out all the points of interest about the seasons of each club and how they kind of reflect the broader narrative. So some clubs will get a whole episode. Some clubs will, you know, get comparatively little coverage. So it's not an even spread of facts and information. So I apologize if you feel that your club has got short shrift, but I've just tried to pull out what I think is the most interesting and the most representative of what rugby league was like in 1997. Well, I think it's perfect because you've used the same model as the spread of talent across clubs in Super League. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in this first episode and the next episode of this chapter, we're going to be covering the also-ran. So the clubs who didn't make the finals, uh, with the exception of the Hunter Mariners. And there's a very important reason for that. I really wanted to discuss Newcastle as a whole. So we're going to be looking at the two Newcastle seasons in tandem quite a bit further down the track of the season. It was a great year for the Hunter Mariners, and we will be giving that 
a lot of attention, but just not in this chapter. To quote Paul Fetty Vorton, one of the great clubs. Um, so we will get into it. Before we do start on that, I have our first piece of erratum for the season, and that concerns uh, the world-famous auctioneer, Leroy Van Dyke, that was <laughs> referred to uh, in our previous chapter. Now, as it turns out, Leroy Van Dyke is not an auctioneer, but actually a country singer who wrote a song called The Auctioneer. Right, that makes sense. A couple of points in my defence. Uh, firstly, <laughs> I took it as face value. That was reported in a newspaper article, and I just assumed that they had done their research. I can't remember which journalist wrote the piece, but as it turns out, no, Leroy Van Dyke was not an auctioneer, despite being labelled as such. Another piece in my defence, and maybe the defence of the journalist involved, is that because of his song, The Auctioneer, Leroy Van Dyke actually is in the World Auctioneers Hall of Fame. Good Lord. I mean, it goes <laughs> to show what sort of entertainment we all used to when you and I readily accepted that an auctioneer <laughs> was going to be the entertainment. <laughs> uh, but maybe one point for the prosecution is that I'm a massive country music fan. I hadn't heard of Leroy Van Dyke or his song, The Auctioneer. Uh, I went and looked it up. It's on YouTube. You can see it for yourself. Not a bad song, not a bad voice. I'd say he's somewhere between Hank Snow and Lefty Frizzell. I'm not rushing out to, you know, track down his full discography, but, um, you know, yeah, decent work from Leroy Van Dyke. Uh, so let's get into it. Season 1997. As I said, we're doing it by club, and we're going to start from the bottom with the North Queensland Cowboys. It was their third season. It was their first with their premiership winning coach in Tim Sheens coming in. So the season had a lot of promise. You know, they kind of improved from Wooden Spooners in 1995. And with Sheens coming in, along with some high-profile recruits, there was a feeling that, you know, maybe this was the start of, you know, getting better and, you know, progressing up the table. So I want to start with the Tim Sheens side of things because I think what Sheens did was to bring credibility and bring that promise, it didn't really work out that way in actuality. I've got to say, man, reading your notes, I'm very disappointed in Sheen's. I always put him on a pedestal as some sort of superman, some sort of super coach, but he's very human, <laughs> it seems. I think he was up against it in a number of ways that we'll get into. And I think that all starts with his arrival in Townsville how that was handled, and what that maybe says about the Cowboys' administration at the time. So basically the deal was done in 1995. So uh, Grant Bell was their inaugural coach. He was celebrating after the club's first ever win, which came in May 1995, and he was waiting on a player contract to come through when a fax came in at the office, and on that fax was a signed contract from Tim Sheens to become their new coach. Isn't that cruel? Yeah, like really horrible. So he went to Rabbi Kram, the uh, CEO at the time, and said, you know, what's doing, to, to quote Fatty, <laughs> for the second time in this episode. Uh, and Rabbi said, yes, he is coming. We've made that decision, but it's not until 1997. So you're good for a year and a half, and hopefully you can show what you can do, and, and that could lead you to a gig elsewhere. Yeah, awful. I really feel for him, and but at the same time, like you understand the Cowboys' need to get a coach of that calibre. If, if that coach becomes available, then you know they'd be mad to not jump on it. 
Yeah, I agree with that, but it's like, why sign the young guy in the first place then if you want an old guy? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true, but I guess he was the best available at the time. So I can forgive the club for making that move. What I don't really get is the decision later in 1995 to sack Bell and bring in Graham Lowe for 1996. So they've signed Sheens for 1997. Bell already knows that he's out, but suddenly they're saying, we want you for the next year. Oh, actually, we're going to go with Graham Lowe for 1996. So odd. It just seems it's needlessly creating a mess. So Grant Bell said that he had Tim Sheens ringing him to talk about player retention and that sort of thing. Graham Lowe was calling up saying he wanted, you know, Reggie Cressbrook played at 5.8 and and all this stuff that wasn't making it easier for Grant Bell. And it also was, I don't know, to me it just seems like disrupting things for no reason. Well, I mean, it's pure rugby league and it's, you know, six losses and then it doesn't matter how embarrassing or how much drama you cause with a decision. Mate, it's untenable. We have to do something. We'll sit Graham Lowe in, you know, it's always knee-jerk yeah. stuff. yeah. Always. I mean, the one thing I could give them a pass on, and this is why I think it was necessary to get Tim Sheens if Tim Sheens was available, is Grant Belt isn't bringing in the calibre of recruits that the Cowboys needed to have a first-grade standard squad, which they didn't have in 1995. So having a name coach can, especially to a footballing outpost like Townsville, you Uh, can see the need to have like big names there. You're being too easy on the administration, I think. It's like you're coming into the comp in, in this one-team town. It's been planned. There's four teams coming in. Just sort the coach out first, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel for the guy. I really do. I do too. Uh, and to his credit, Graham Lowe, I think, came in and he knew he was going to be there for one year. It was kind of like him coming out of retirement. So, And I haven't really seen a breakdown of the relationship between him and Tim Sheens, but from what I've seen, it seems there was a mutual respect there. So I think Graham Lowe was quite happy to just kind of pave the way for Sheens' arrival without disrupting things too much. Well, I was always a Graham Lowe admirer, and um, I did a bit of research on him as we're preparing for this episode. I didn't know he was knighted recently. Yes. Sir Graham Lowe. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. Um, I assume it's one of the knighthoods that comes from New Zealand rather than someone in England saying he should get it because, I mean, they knighted the Mad Butcher as well. So. <laughs> All right, well, that puts it in perspective. Yeah, a nice honour for him nonetheless. Uh, yeah, so there's a bit more Graham Lowe talk coming uh, at the back end of this episode, but we might move on from the Lowe era to the Sheens era. And We've got the Sir Mad Butcher. Can we have the Sir Let's Go On Warriors guy? so sheens comes in in 1997 adamant that he didn't want a you know five-year plan this was his quote i hate those five-year plans that's just an excuse for a coach to have an ordinary first two or three years we want some sort of result early a better result in year two and a consistency that becomes well developed in year three now does that not sound very much like a five-year plan or the first three (laughs) years of a five-year plan (laughs) (laughs) what's funnier than contradicting yourself in your own quote (laughs) so that started with a clean out so um, you know Sheen's didn't really like what he saw at the club there was a massive overhaul of the playing roster over the next couple of years Uh, it you know it didn't really 
get sorted basically for the entirety of the Cowboys in the 90s. There was huge amount of turnover year to year. A lot of players who were there for only one year. Paul Bowman, I'd forgotten that he was there in 1995. Like to me, I just associate him with those kind of like, you know, early 2000s Cowboys team, you know, a bridge to the Thurston era. But he was there from the start. Yeah, great player too. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, struggled for stability. Some really good players or, you know, wholehearted players made way. The one I really feel sorry for was Adrian Vowles, Mm, who comes at the club in 95, their inaugural captain, loved the place, you know, loved living there. His quote was, I was shattered. My heart and soul was in North Queensland. My wife, Kerry, and I had bought a house there. We had a young daughter and suddenly they didn't want me. Townsville meant so much to me. I went home and panicked. My world had crashed around me. Quotes like that, which makes you realise we're dealing with human beings here, as much as we have a laugh at the expense of um, rugby league player yeah. mindset, it's uh, hits home, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's the nature of the game, and you can't run a club with those feelings in mind. You've got to make the club the best you can. And players go into it knowing that at any stage, you know, their employment is conditional, but at a human level, it, it re- is really tough to think of. On a positive, I, mean, I really admire what he did with his career because he got selected for a legitimate origin team, so that's something to hang your hat on. But then he went to England and became a real star mm. and really made the most of it, become a leader over there. So yeah, uh, he's treated a little bit shabbily over here, really, because he's quite a classy player, wholehearted, like you say. Yeah, and I guess it's just kind of like, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And, I mean, better players than him fell by the wayside at the same time. Yeah, true. I mean, but it's those sort of guys like him and Tolson Tollett, guys that were um, mm. uh, overlooked here that sort of pushed the English game forward. So, yeah, got a lot of respect for it. Yeah. So, Sheen's, in addition to moving on, quite a few players brought a few in, uh, a mix of youth and experience. Tyron Smith was one of the young guns who came up with a lot of promise, leaving Souths. And, you know, just a preview for when we talk about Souths, he said this that he came to the Cowboys because he wanted to be coached. So a little <laughs> subtle dig there at Ken Shine at the Rabbitohs. So is that his second club, Tyrant Smith, at that point? At that point, it was. And as it turns out, it wouldn't be his only club for the year. So he was released <laughs> by the Cowboys uh, midway through 1997 and um, played with the Hunter Mariners for the rest of the year. It wasn't until Canberra that he really found his footing, like had all his promise but it was just kind of like a, you know, stop-start kind of career. But I think those last two or three years at Canberra, like, he became, like, you know, not a star, but a solid first grader that no, it was very had kind of us. settled. Yeah. i tell you what, like, when I, I remember him coming through and I think, oh, this guy's amazing, how rangy he is, you know, <laughs> yeah. athletic and everything. Then I remember thinking, God, he's not that bright. And, um, you know, he looked like, or he changes the clubs, he looked like the sort of guy that was going to go, like, really bad. Mm. And now look at him, he's like a player agent, he's like, yeah. Respected and so really turned it around. Yeah, totally. Uh, the rest of the signings, it was a lot of experience, like Owen Cunningham and Ian Roberts coming up from Manly. Roberts, he had some good moments at the Cowboys, but, you know, his body was kind of breaking down. It wasn't a consistent couple of years of showing that he still had it. Owen Cunningham, on the other hand, in 1997 in particular, uh, he won the Cowboys Player of the Year and like really stamped his class and made it a hugely positive impact there. That was a really astute signing by them because that was a exact player they needed, right? Yeah. 
like we'll talk about later, Kevin Campion at the Rams, like some players you just need in your team. And Cunningham, yeah, yeah. brilliant signing for them. But Roberts as well, like that was a name. They needed a name and he was a enforcer as well. So even if they got like 20 minutes a game out of it, it was worth it. Yeah, that's right. Just having that name, it just gives them some credibility. But I think the most significant signings was the Canberra connection that he brought with him. And, you know, there would be more that would come over the next couple of years. I think over the course of his time at the Cowboys, I think it was something like 11 former Canberra players ended up there. But the two big ones for 97 were Steve Walters and John Lomax. Well, Karen Walters fell off a cliff from like 92 to 97. And then Steve Walters fell off a cliff in the mid-90s too. Not as bad as Karen, but God, he went from like the best player in the world in 94 pretty much to struggling yeah yeah basically the last three years of his career so two years at the cowboys and one at newcastle it just happened so quickly from being regarded as the best hooker of all time as he was talked about you know in that era to you know finished his cowboys career coming off the interchange bench they didn't want him for 1999 he picked up a gig at newcastle to you know not outstanding results the game just kind of passed him by so quickly it's funny kevin just went right to the end yeah yeah he went up he was looking for a change from canberra he thought he felt stale wasn't being tested and wanted to finish his career at a queensland club this was bad news for jason deeth who had left canberra to escape Steve Walters. I can't believe it. I remember at the time going, how bad is this? Like, Because he was a good player and we had him on the yeah. bench and like wasting him. And I, So he went up there and I thought, oh, good for him, you know. And then um, yeah. and Steve Walters goes, fuck Jason <laughs> Deeth. Yeah, so poor Jason Deeth. And I think both Walters and Lomax maybe thought it was just going to be like a kind of easier ride than it ended up being. Like, you know, they were under their old coach, you know, living in a tropical location. But both were dropped by Sheens during 97 for disciplinary reasons. And, you know, neither really got anywhere near the heights of their Canberra days. Was it just like general carry-on lateness, that type of thing? Yeah, yeah. So nothing too serious. But when he was asked why he dropped Walters and Lomax instead of finding them, he didn't go into it, but he said, both are not first defenders. So, you know, maybe it was just a, you know, lack of professionalism or, yeah, as you said, just a bit of carry on. <laughs> you get these clubs where, like, it's in a nice area. So people just think, well, oh, most whack like we're on holidays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so unprofessional. <laughs> One of the really interesting things for me in terms of the Canberra connection following him to Queensland was Chica Ferguson, who. Tim Sheen's brought up to Townsville in 1997 for a like community development kind of role. So Chica came up. I don't know that he actually stayed with the Cowboys that long, but he made a home for himself in Townsville and is there to this day. Yeah, I didn't know that until the research, mate. It's um, he's the reason I followed the Camper Raiders. It got me into footy pretty much, just leading Triscore in the mid 80s, and happy to hear it. Yeah, it was really interesting. So I sent you an article from The Australian in 2019. So it was in the lead up to the Canberra Grand Final run. It was an article, you know, trying to track down Chica. Uh, They ended up not being able to get in touch with him. They made contact with his son-in-law in in Townsville and he said, "Uh, I'll see what I can do, but he's probably not going to get back to you, which (laughs) he didn't do in the end, which is fine. But it blew me away reading 
the other Raiders players, like Laurie Daly was interviewed and said the last time he saw him was like around 1994. Like he's just completely like moved away from it and isn't in contact with anyone. Either it's a very sad case of ultimate shyness slash agoraphobia or he's really smart and hates hanging out footballers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, from what you hear, he really contributes to the community up there. Like he's involved with a local church, does kind of drug and alcohol kind of stuff and, you know, is a dedicated family man and that's kind of what he needs as opposed to the adulation from fans and the football community but it's it's just so odd when it's such a tight-knit team those Raiders teams yeah and he was the crowd favorite of all crowd favorites grand final hero it was just really surprising to read that he's one guy that I wouldn't bail up if I saw him out of respect yeah no one would hate a bail up more than Chica yeah yeah exactly and if even you uh, you know, willing to give up the chance for a bail-up. <laughs> that tells you something. But I don't know, there's something kind of, you know, as you said, you know, maybe it's a sad thing, but there's also something just really cool about a guy that did this, was a hero, like knows how beloved he is, but doesn't need it, doesn't care for it, so just runs his own race and stays out of the way. It's real self-assuredness, isn't it, to not yeah. seek validation? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's just strange. I didn't know any of that. Um, but we'll move on from Chicka to the, the Cowboys season itself. So they were wooden spooners who, as late as June, were in with a mathematical chance of making the finals, which, you know, is, is kind of not hard to do in a 10-team comp, but, you know. The only maths rugby league people and fans are into is mathematical chances. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically, once the finals were out of reach, they you know, dedicated themselves to a run in the World Club Challenge instead. That was similarly ill-fated. But just reading that, I was thinking like, I wonder what kind of impact that had on the domestic season when you have clubs out of the race for the finals just going, okay, well, we've got a chance at some money and some silverware if we just divert our attention that way. Yeah, it's funny because I always thought them would be weak comps a great idea, but then I didn't sort of factor into that tanking the main comp to have a go at them. Yeah, <laughs> which is comp. the last thing you want. Like we've talked about it previously, how much we love the idea of, you know, mid-season comp to give the players a break, give origin its own period, internationals, etc. But there is a knock-on effect to that and you can't just bring it in without considering what it's going to do to your actual domestic season. So as it turns out, leading into the last round, the Rams actually sat in last spot. Uh, The Warriors and Cowboys were also with a chance of the spoon. And then you had the Mariners and the Reds, a win ahead of them. So Adelaide beat Penrith in their last round to get themselves off the bottom, but the Warriors thrashed the Cowboys. So the Warriors ended up with the wooden spoon. So as it turns out, only one win separated sixth spot, which was the Hunter Mariners from last spot, the Cowboys. Yeah. To me, it it highlights the Mickey Mouse tendencies of a 10-team comp. (laughs) It's so stupid, yeah. (laughs) All the um, spruiking, all the razzmatazz and ended up with a 10-team comp with three good teams. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it, it was kind of a frustrating year for the Cowboys. So it was a growth year. You know, they won five games out of 18, had two draws, Won five out of six in the World Club Challenge, which not a massive achievement, but it's something. (laughs) 
But they end up with the spoon anyway. So uh, Tim Sheen's quote was, I think it's difficult for everybody in Queensland who saw the Cowboys perform better than they ever had before, still ending up in last spot on the ladder. Well, it's astonishing looking at it from you know three decades later, whatever it is, the Auckland and North Queensland, these huge bases of talent. It took them years and years and years to get anything close to a system happening. <laughs> and this is where you can say, oh, it was really unlucky for the Cowboys that they ended up with the spoon when they were growing. The fact is they had some advantages. They had a two-year run-up on the Rams and the Mariners for a start. The Reds were imploding all over the place, so... You could see with a bit of off-field stability, maybe the Cowboys were expected to do better. Well, it just goes to show, mate, how important your initial squad is when you have a new team. Hunter just had some really good players, Kamal yeah. and Hill, yep. you know, all those good players that were just uh, thrown together as offcuts, but it, it worked out. Yeah, exactly. You put Scott Hill and Kamal in North Queensland, they're looking a whole lot better. Yeah. And the thing about the Cowboys is that they've been pretty stable for nearly 30 years. Like, there hasn't been too much incompetence on the board. There hasn't, you know, been financial crises. Their crowds have always been good. So that Super League year, they had the second best crowds out of either competition. So second only to the Broncos. Finished last, but still averaged over 17,000 for the year. That's impressive in Super League year. Yeah. And we're in good state financially. And I could be wrong, but I can't remember any financial crisis at the Cowboys over the years. They've just been a solid club, well-supported, but their ability to recruit and retain players has been the only factor holding them back. The problem is that that is a a significantly important factor to a club's success. Yeah, it took them a long time. And, I mean, over the years, there's been various times when you'd say they underachieved. You know, during the Thurston era, which... From face value, I thought it was an underachieving kind of thing. But then when you actually look at it from, say, 2010 on, it's like pretty sustained success for, you know, six or seven years, culminating in a premiership and another grand final appearance. So, I don't know, the last 10 or 15 years of Cowboys history has made me think that we're not too far away from a, you know, really powerful Cowboys era. As long as they're a good, solid outpost, a regional outpost, that's good for the game. Uh, One solid regional outpost that we no longer have is Adelaide, which for many reasons is a real shame. Uh, 1997 for Adelaide was a really promising year. They finished ninth but had some good wins along the way. But more importantly, off-field, they, you know, opened with 27,000 for their first home game and, you know, had a good run of decent crowds for the first half of the year. Uh, in particular, they seemed well run. They had good infrastructure there. So when you think about 1997 in Adelaide, there was just so much promise and so much hope. So I'm the ultimate booster of this. I've got a, in my mind a 500,000 word manifesto on Paradise Lost, what could have been in NRL yeah. in Adelaide. There were so many good signs in 1997, like that 27,000 fair opening game, that speaks for itself. But just like little things, There was a South Australian schoolboys team that won the developing states competition, you know. So as the Rams were there, there's a sign that they've got this junior pathway and and there's a chance for them to build something ahead of schedule. I've only been there once in Adelaide for a week and I really, really loved the vibe of the place. And it's got a Brisbane feel to it for me. And they're sort of open people, open to watching NRL. It's the way I felt dealing with them. And um, I just really think that they dropped the ball hard, not keeping that up. Yeah, and 
we're not going to go too far into their demise in this episode, but you know, th- there are a few things that maybe worked against them. One of them was the AFL thing, the fact that the same year that they entered, Port Adelaide entered the competition. The Adelaide Crows won the first of their two premierships in a row. So it was just really bad timing for a team that needed to stand out a bit in that market. Well, I mean, uh, the good thing is they didn't know football intimately, so the fact that that squad was sort of thrown together a touch that didn't impact the fans coming out, which is great, but give them a few more years, they could have had a Melbourne Storm type following easy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, When you say the fans didn't know football that well, um, that's very true and acceptable. You would hope their ground announcer knew a bit more about football than he did. Uh, at that first game, he was trying to get the crowd up, so he's trying to lead a defense chant uh, and you know getting the crowd into it. The only problem is that the Rams had the ball at the time. <laughs> now, what's more offensive, an American telling you when to clap or an imbecile telling you when to defense? <laughs> but I think what they offered in this you know league naive city was a point of difference so it was just a different experience to going to an AFL match and there's always going to be a market for something like that I remember a couple of years after the GWS uh, arrived in Sydney I actually went to you know my one and only GWS game with a mate and I don't know there would have been maybe like seven or eight thousand people there but it was just a cool vibe because it was so far different to going to a league match that you were just like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. And I think in an AFL city, rugby league has some of that same advantage. <laughs> I really hate your um, inner West nature open to new experiences. <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> but I, I equate the problems of GWS trying to break into West Sydney, which is just pure rugby league. I think the Melbourne Storm had that with Melbourne, right? Mm. AFL mad. I think Rams in Adelaide could have been like Swans in Sydney. Yeah. A bit easier road in. Yeah, well, that's it. It's an expansion that wasn't born out of arrogance, which, like, that's everything about GWS. And I think to some extent, like, Melbourne in the NRL is an example of that, the way they came into the competition. But just having a point of difference and having a kind of family-friendly, you know, sporting vibe, it's something that can build naturally over, you know, a few years if they were given the time. I mean, just a change of jerseys, change of colours, you know, a bit more um, switched on look. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe a better mascot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I think the Rams is cool. I'll always stand by the Rams. Better than the Aces anyway. Can we agree on that? (laughs) Uh, One asset they had was in their CEO, Liz Dawson, who at that point was the second uh, rugby league CEO to be a woman. The first was Donna Burke, who held the position at Cronulla, in a acting capacity for seven or eight months in the late 80s. Uh, so Liz Dawson, the first full-time female chief executive in rugby league. So she was in the press quite a bit throughout 1997 and just like really struck me as a you know very impressive CEO, not the woman part of it. I don't think it was an, an annoyance because she understood that that was the game she was in. There was always going to be questions about, you know, what does it feel like being a woman in rugby league? Like, <laughs> it feels the same as everyone else dealing with ingrained incompetence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> would you describe her as a smooth operator? I would, yeah. And she had a long career in sports administration following the Rams. So she's back in New Zealand 
now, but was on the board at St Kilda in the AFL. I think she was involved with New Zealand netball, uh, I think a super rugby team. So she's kind of bounced all over the place, but has made a career for herself in sports administration. It's all downhill from NRL, isn't it? Yeah. Football rugby union, God. But for the most part, I think she handled the job really well and was a really strong spokesman or spokeswoman for the club. Uh, maybe her only misstep was uh, came in Rod Reddy, who was their inaugural coach, and months into their existence was extended for three years. Well, Rod Reddy had mad raps from the players, right? The yeah. The players coach. And yeah. So she's probably thinking, it's, it's going to be fine. No worries. Three years is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and like had some early success. So it seemed like a good move at the time. And it may still have been. like To me, the, it's more the sacking him a year into the job after you've just extended him, you know, just the typical rugby league administration uh, style. I mean, like no one's more of an expert on ludicrous extensions than you being a Dragons fan, right? <laughs> so I quote you when I say, who are we fighting off in poaching yeah. this guy from us that yeah, we have to exactly. extend three years? Yeah. And... You know, he'd already bought the house in Adelaide, so... <laughs> see, that's a rugby mentality too. Rather than wait and see, maybe get a three-month lease and see how the, <laughs> see how the win-loss record is. <laughs> but yeah, so I think he was the right coach for the time just because he had the name and he had the respect of players. Like, I think of like a bloke like Kevin Campion coming into Adelaide. Like, what a dream matchup that is for player and coach. The success Adelaide had, I mean, how much of it can you put down to Kevin Campion? There's no yeah. bigger fans than Kevin Campion than the RLD. Everywhere mm. he went, he toughened the squad up and brought success. Yeah, so exactly. That's one of those, if North Queensland had him, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And at that point, he was basically in the peak prime of his career. So Bashing people. <laughs> yeah. Like, just such a hard nut. Being coached by one of the ultimate hard nuts. Just a dream forward for Rod Reddy and someone who could like deliver Reddy's message on field. Uh, so apart from Campion, you had Kerrod Walters as the marquee signing. As we discussed in our earlier chapter where we mentioned the Rams, they missed out on so many top players that they'd gone after, starting with Alan Langer. Ian Roberts was supposed to go there. John Lomax, Robbie Ross, even George Gregan. So name after name had turned them down. They were left with Carrod Walters, who was unwanted at the Broncos. But he came in and was just a professional and could handle the weekly grinds, could be a positive influence on the younger players. And more importantly, like has been an advocate for Adelaide football, like pretty much ever since. Anytime he's interviewed and gets asked about Adelaide, he talks about feeling bad about the team going and there was a real promise there and a chance to build something. Well, I mean, him... Mayborn and Campion, without those three, there's a lot of uh, issues there. Yeah. But, um, the way he rejuvenated his career from like being in the wilderness, pretty much. Um, yeah. Very impressed. But yeah, outside of those three veterans, you had Mark Corvo, who was a fringe first grader at Canberra, who managed to, you know, win the Rams Player of the Year. And I think now Mark Corvo is actually best remembered as a Rams player. And that there's very few players who you could say that about. Graham Apo. Yeah, Apo as well would be the other one. Uh, some astute junior recruitment, like David Kidwell actually made his debut at the Rams in 1997. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody in footy's got fond memories of the Rams, the ultimate underdog. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about their winger, Wayne Simons, who was so excited to live on a waterfront place in Adelaide on the river that he 
decided to get some fishing gear so he could fish off his porch. Um, the first time he tried to do so, he cast his rod and caught his own lip, required surgery <laughs> to have the hook removed. That's so terrible. Imagine how much that would hurt. Christ. <laughs> oh. I think rugby league's probably in the, a world leader in freak home injuries yeah. as well. Like, <laughs> but so maybe that was a, a bad omen for how the Rams' experience was to play out. But as we said, they started strong, won that first home game before twenty seven thousand, and for much of the year they like maintained it. So there was a rugby league week article at the end of May talking about their impressive supporters. They hadn't had a game under 15,000 fans. That was the ultimate jinx because, as it turns out, the Rugby League Week wrote that article just after the last Rams home game that would ever attract more than 15,000 people. <laughs> so would you put that down to the um, the shine coming off because of the losses or just... I, like, yeah, I, I think that's part of the it. The novelty. A bit of both. Um you know, definitely like once it sunk in that this wasn't a particularly good football team, they were going to lose more often than they weren't. You had the new AFL club in Port Adelaide. You had the Crows going on a premiership run. Attention's being diverted elsewhere. So as it turns out, for the rest of the year after that Rugby League Week article, they averaged 12,000, which is still very reasonable. Like it's impressive, in fact, in a non-rugby league town for a club in their first year. So that season average was just under 15,000. But beyond that, the novelty had worn off. In 1998, they broke 10,000 only once, and that was in the round one game. So, But you've got to factor in, I reckon, mate, you've got to factor in the fact that um, you're asking a bunch of people in a city to watch a new sport. Oh, by the way, the game is in a civil war and only half the teams are going to play. Yeah. Ten-team comps, Mickey Mouse, like, you know. Yeah, and we're about the worst team in that comp. So, yeah. Off-field troubles didn't help with an incident at the Crazy Horse Strip Club leading to uh, four players being arrested. So uh, one player was asked to leave, refused to do so, and then shortly after a squad of police cars arrived and, uh, yeah, they were arrested and charged with various offences, assaulting police, disorderly behaviour, resisting arrest. So not a good look. Uh, but it probably tells the story that their on-field performances like quickly fell away over the course of the year. Uh, finished ninth, a successful debut with a lot of promise, but it wasn't going to be enough. So they rang in the changes for 1998 with a bunch of players released. Um, the problem is, at that point, they were preparing for a 14-team reunited comp with a lot of players to pick from. In the end, they were left with a 22-team comp and, you know, had little chance of building the squad that they needed to for 1998. Think about that. 10-team comp, frying pan to 22-team comp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fire. Yeah. You know, so it was just a bad time in the end. Like, just a lot went wrong for the Rams that in a different era with a chance to build the club and, you know, build a city's appreciation for the game it could have worked and it's just a real shame that that was it and you know can't see an Adelaide team coming anytime soon yeah but this one pisses me off 98 happened right we could jump the gun we'll talk about that when the time comes but they were just cast away like well you know Adelaide yeah don't worry about them just flicked away like not even a thought and then suddenly it's a city never to be revisited yeah. and why yeah. why not revisit it to me it all comes back to the fact that they 
weren't the first choice at the time. Like they basically like fell backwards into having a rugby league team when not enough clubs signed with Super League. And it was never anyone's dream to have a team in Adelaide. So I don't think it's ever been a priority. What I don't get is we hear about Perth every six minutes, yep. right? Yeah. Perth coming about Perth. This Greg Florimer is coming out of his um gopher hole like yeah. Caddyshack, you know, make it the Bears, you know. And then Adelaide just doesn't get a mention. No, it's never. much more successful than Perth. Yeah, I think it's viewed that there's these natural advantages of Perth, both in terms of the, you know, the time difference. Having a rugby culture, I, I use that word deliberately because it's not necessarily rugby league, but it's viewed that it's a more natural fit. But I kind of agree with you. I, I think Adelaide should at least be in the discussion. <laughs> they rather push a central corridor of uh, country yeah, Queensland. Yeah, I mean, that, that is an insult <laughs> that we're talking about the central Queensland corridor over one of the, the five major cities in the country. Yeah. Well, if I was Flo, I'd be there pushing bears for Adelaide. Yeah, and I could actually see that working. But anyway, we'll leave the Rams there and head to New Zealand, who were in their third season like the Cowboys. And again, some changes that made them think that they were on the cusp of something. The biggest of that was the arrival of the Rugby League Digest ultimate hero, Matthew Ridge. And people who have listened to our earlier chapters may be confused because he was, of course, their key spokesman throughout much of 1996, (laughs) despite not being on the books there for that year. (laughs) But now in 1997, we are talking about him as an actual Auckland warrior. And I'd say to that point in time, he was their most important signing, the, you know, most significant player that they had had up to that time. That was a key signing, yeah. And I think for John Money, this was his quote. All the great players I've coached, Sterling, Kenny, Gene Miles, Andy Gregory, Ellery Hanley, they've had unusual traits, and Matthew Ridge is the same. They're leaders, they're inspirational, they're mentally tough, and that's what we've bought him for. We haven't bought him for his training habits or for the sponsors. We brought Matthew Ridge for match day. I didn't know he was considered a bad trainer. I didn't know if Money was necessarily having a dig at his training because I think he, for the sponsors, he, he's kind of a sponsor's dream, although he's, you know, likely to abuse them at, you know, <laughs> events and functions. But, like, just having a big name, I think the sponsors would love him. So I don't necessarily saying he's bad for training or the sponsors. I think Moni's saying, like, right, we're three years in. We need results on field. We need a champion. So that's why we've got Matthew Ridge. But he's capable of going to a sponsor's event and then announcing that the competitor's the better brand, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I said, fair nigga. (laughs) So I think that kind of sets up the potential for the problems, that there was a weight of expectation and a belief that this could be a kind of transcendent signing. I would put him as a really, really classy player, but he's not going to let be a James Tedesco type where it's going to be swashbuckling, you know, so it's a bit more subtle, his impact, than a huge um, swashbuckling type signing. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And I think that was maybe part of the problem. There was just a mismatch in expectation and reality. Uh, At the same time, Ridge came over fully embracing his off-field profile. So he'd, you know, become their spokesman before he was a player. So I think when he actually arrived as a player, he was ready to be the leader. He was instantly installed as captain and was going to dominate in the press. Once he arrived, he 
launched his TV career. So he was, you know, getting involved in a, a series of, of shows and ads, various things that actually like set him up really well for his post football yeah, career. Yeah. So like, you know, he had a long run in New Zealand as a TV personality. He's made for TV. He's like the Paul Voughton of New Zealand. Yeah. He's like, yeah. like a natural, naturally honest, authentic bloke. Yeah, which is funny because I looked him up in preparation for this to see if he was still on TV there. And basically he kind of disappeared about 2010 and, you know, wasn't really doing much for about 10 or 11 years. And then in 2021, he took a gig as host of an architectural show where he'd go to various homes around New Zealand, speak to the architects and and the owners and, and, you know, showcase the homes. (laughs) He's been in everything, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, mate, why would you use uh, timber there? You're kidding yourself. <laughs> He's thinking I need a steel beam, and I'm thinking, like. <laughs> you call that a spire? <laughs> Don't make it for men? <laughs> but I think in many ways Super League was kind of the worst thing for his career because of how outspoken he became and, and how much of that he took on. So Frank Endicott, actually, I really thought this quote was interesting. He said, when he was used to promote Super League, it really did something to his character. Without the Super League wall, we would have seen how great he was. I think that's a bit overstated, personally, but... I think, to me, it's the Super League thing and the off-field thing. Like, it was maybe a time for him to be just focusing on finishing his career really strongly, but he had all this other external stuff going on. It's just a case of going from a powerhouse club to a newbie. I mean, yeah, that's the yeah. Problem. I think there's a lot to that. And he brought those high standards with him from Manly. And as a result of that, he was, you know, criticized quite a bit for castigating his teammates on field and, you know, being really tough with them and bringing that expectation that I was at Manly, we had success. This is how you run the club. I will say, like, with his demeanor and appearance he's a natural heel so his body language on the field at times i can recall being a bit like oh geez oh yeah yeah he's not one of those leaders that leads by um positivity (laughs) no yeah and on top of bringing the standards of manly there was also the bozo factor i think bozo got ridge like no other coach could have the thing that bozo one of his key attributes was that he himself was a prick yeah, as a player and a coach and administrator, so do anything to win type prick. I say that yeah. lovingly, and Ridge is the same. And they're just like, well, you know, it's all fair in love and football. Yeah, exactly. So I think they were cut from the same cloth in that regard. And the sledging and the toughness, Fulton got that. And Moni was like outspoken in not liking sledging. And we're going to talk a bit more about the breakdown of that relationship, but. I think like it was always going to be a struggle for any coach to live up to Bob Fulton in Matthew Ridge's mind. Inside Sport in, I think it was like March 1997, had a profile on Matthew Ridge. So this was before he played his first Super League game for the Warriors. Uh, It's just crazy how much they nailed how the Ridge experience was going to play out. So I'm just going to read this quote. Our concern to some is that Ridge, transferring from a starlight and a superbly drilled team in Manly, will demand of his new teammates that which they're simply not capable of producing. He was vital to Manly, but was one component in an awesome assembly, expertly moulded by Fulton over four years into a premiership-winning team. 
Now that he's working within a slightly inferior side and carrying enormous expectations, there's at least the potential for Ridge to become frustrated and even dispirited. Yeah. And that's basically exactly how it played out. So 1997 was a tough year for him. In his words, it's been a shocker. So a lot of injuries on top of the the general frustration of the team not quite being there. He was arguing with referees when he wasn't arguing with his own players or his coach. And that was basically like carried through for the rest of his career at the Warriors. So in 1998, Graham Lowe said, he appears to just be a little bit out of control. It appears to me from the outside that Matthew is more interested in the dollars than the performances. He's overpaid and underachieving. His discipline became a real problem. He was, you know, like in 1999, which ended up being his last year of rugby league, he and Nigel Vungana were suspended for three matches for manhandling a ref. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's unacceptable. In his second game after coming back from that suspension, he got suspended for eight games over three separate charges for tripping a high tackle and contrary conduct. That's right. He was tripping like Elf, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he was just a bit out of control in the Warriors era, born out of that frustration. And so he was released from the last year of his contract and retired after 1999. This is actually part one of the, of the Ridge portion of this episode. I just wanted to talk about his legacy and where he fits in. Because in hindsight, going to the Warriors was terrible for his career. Like, do you think we're talking about him as a Hall of Fame player if he'd stayed at Manly? Having him there in 1997 would have given them, you know, a pretty decent chance in that grand final, who knows what his last few years in first grade would have been if he stayed in that team. Like, I've got more respect for blokes that do that and don't stay in the comfortable, high-flying environment. Yeah. So the fact that he went and tried to contribute to Auckland, I, I respect. But to me, he is a Hall of Fame player. I don't know. That, that's interesting because I think to me he's short. Because he passes that test that I always use, which is very subjective. He's like, you ask anybody from the football fan and go, what do you think of him? And they go, oh, he's a good player, you know? Yeah, yeah. So no one's going to say Matthew Ridge was a, oh, yeah, I don't know whether he was a good player or not. He's like, he's universally known as a as a good player. Universally known as a good player, but I don't know if at any point in his career you'd say he was even like a top three fullback. Like, you know, he was never far below the top five. Agree, but like he was always in the top three for between the years. Um, yeah, yeah. Football IQ. Yep. Which is what I think is his strength that it can't be quantified. Exactly. And had the added thing of being one of the three super boots of the era, uh, super boot <laughs> kicking at 78%. <laughs> but like, I think of the three, of Taylor Halligan and Ridge, he's probably like least regarded as a goal kicker of those three. Like He's kind of the third one I think of. I don't know where it finished up, but for much of his career, his percentages was higher than those other two. I'd probably put him... In my mind, is like Halligan's the super boot, and he's the runner-up, and then and then yeah. Taylor. Taylor mm. had a few like sixty-five percent years, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, when I think back at his career, and it's patchy, I'll admit, but all I remember is him always making the right play, always being classy and slick. And maybe it's just because he was with Manly and they were dominating regular season. Well, well yeah, this is the thing, and you can say you respect him for going over to the Warriors and not getting too comfortable. But the fact that he did that and ultimately failed is that a sign that he was always just a bit short of the top tier, like a star in a good team, 
but not the type of player who could get a bad one over the line. And, and when you say a bad one, like it's not his responsibility to make a team with star potential get the best of that potential. But that Warriors team was like fairly loaded. No, 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 no. They had half the salary cap wasted on like union converts, like playing reserve grade. Andy Platt, you know, 500 grand, yeah. you know. So I think he walked into a minefield personally. But do you say that about Greg Alexander? He went to the Warriors and couldn't do anything. So it's like... Yes, he didn't make them better, but I don't think many people would have. Maybe Alfie would have, you know? I mean, there was so much potential there, I guess is my point. You had Stacey Jones entering his prime. Stephen Kearney, about the best second row in the game in 1997. True, true. But you can go for 20 years and say, like, they've had potential, you know, after that, yeah, after that yeah. squad. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know how we've uh, turned this episode into one of our uh, disastrous Hall of Fame segment. So, <laughs> well, it's got the clarity of one of those episodes. Nothing's been resolved. Yeah, yeah. So we're in the same boat. I love Matthew Ridge as much as I have for the course of this series. But yeah, ultimately, I think he's just a bit short of the top tier. You mentioned the union busts, and this was the basically the end of that strategy. So you still had Mark Carter on the books, who was a former All Black who was basically playing out his Warriors career in reserve grade. John Kerwin was released at the end of the 1996 season. And then you had Mark Ellis, who was, you know, the kind of glamour player and and became Matthew Ridge's on-screen partner for many years in New Zealand television, uh, but never really got it together in rugby league. I don't remember Mark Carter. No, yeah, I don't remember him at all. John Kerwin is recognised as a bust, but like he actually kind of got there by the end. Like, and maybe it wasn't value for money, but he was the Warriors' top try scorer in nineteen ninety six, and like actually became an okay league player. Like, it wasn't a Garrick Morgan situation. Yeah, I think we're being harsh on that particular one, but um, the Mark Ellis one was a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But remember when we were kids and like Michael O'Connor and like every union convert was a gun, you know. Mm. Five meter rule. Turn yep. when a ten meter rule come in, it was curtains for union Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, and it's kind of a shame that we never got to see your theory tested. Union professionalism came in at the same time that the ten meter rule was, you know, codified, as opposed to you know being in the big five era. Yeah. So we, we never really got to see that theory tested, but certainly, like you know, we haven't really seen any top line converts since. Are you proposing a hybrid game? <laughs> Please. Let's move on then. So, <laughs> so that was kind of the end of the union experiment, which I, I think in hindsight, like it wasn't a bad strategy to at least get some press on the Warriors. You got to factor that in, right? So yeah. I'm always astonished that they're a rugby union country to this day, but back then even more so, like rugby league was like uh, afterthought from the yeah. majority of the nation. So yeah, yeah. I think it probably was um, worthwhile in the end just for mm. name recognition. Just like Heinrich Falls for uh, <laughs> the Mariners. <laughs> um, also seeing out the end of his career in reserve grade was Phil Blake, who I didn't even realise he was still playing in 1997. I think he only played a couple of first grade games for the year and was in reserve grade, didn't get the fairy tale finish by any stretch. Probably one of the most beloved players just for his early 80s and 89 season, yeah. right? For, yeah. Everyone loves in the chip and chase. But yeah, quite a sad ending. But he was to me quite old by then, ninety seven. 
Yeah, and his quote on it was, I'm realistic enough to know I'm not wanted and I'm not going to embarrass myself or the club by asking them about next year. I always like go back to Fatty's assessment of Phil Blake. Fatty said, he disappoints me, Phil Blake. You know, he had so much talent and we never really got to see him put it together. What do you put that down to? Just the mercurial nature of his play or? I think that's it. I think he just had that kind of mentality or that kind of mindset that he was going to drift in and out of interest and, you know, didn't have the, I guess, the necessary dedication or fortitude to do it for long periods. It's so funny that you can be remembered and be loved for like, you know, one or two amazing seasons. Yeah. 89, it was out of this world. I was so in love with Phil Blake in 89. It was the best. So one of only, I think, three, I think it's him, Mario, Terry Lamb. I could be missing one, but I think they're the only three to play every season of the Winfield Cup era. Wow. I don't want to single out Adam Hawes, who I did in our last chapter for some suboptimal journalism, but he had this (laughs) quote. (laughs) Don't bring corporate speaking to this podcast, please. (laughs) I was just trying to soften the blow because I really like Adam Hawes, you know, great writer for the RLW for many years. This was his quote on Phil Blake in a 1997 profile. He has played at more clubs than the Deltones and has had more clubs than Greg Norman. Like, you don't go back to the metaphor well. Like, pick one. In the same sentence. Yeah. (laughs) The Deltones was a great call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I had in my notes. Deltones call, great. Norman, hack. (laughs) <laughs> my old man had a Deltans tape when I was younger, but I mean, I never got to see him in the club. I would love to see him live. <laughs> Some good homegrown surf rock. The Deltones, Cole Joy, great era of Australian rock and roll. That's probably a good place to move on from Phil Blake. This is the tangent episode. Yeah. <laughs> so just to talk about another couple of members of that squad that we have mentioned already, but Stephen Kearney, I just loved Stephen Kearney. I thought he was such a good player. 1997, he was possibly the best second rower in the game. He was a superstar, the most important player in that Warriors team, and just had this mental toughness and like was a veteran, even though he would have been like mid-20s at the time, I guess. As much as we castigate them for their signings and stuff, they had some big, big forwards over the years as well. You know, it was the start of it. Yeah, and then I guess the problem is that he didn't stay, you know, like he left after 97, which was the best career move of all time, leaves a basket case, goes to the storm, wins a comp. Yeah. But like just a real leader within that team. And just when you're reading these articles and the way he was talked about, it really surprises me that he didn't make it as a coach. I actually like thought it was going to be such a brilliant move for the Warriors. I thought it was really going to work out and... Yeah, for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. Well, when you say he didn't make it as a coach, we say it every time. If he got the Trent Robertson slot at the Roosters, he probably would have five comps. Yeah. If you go to the Warriors, you're saying, well, it's an uphill battle from day one. Yeah. You know, he had the Parramatta experience. If you get two bites, you know, that says something to me. Yeah, You get two bites and don't make it work. But anyway, I love Stephen Kearney. Um, He was their leader on the field. Their player of the year was Stacey Jones, who by 1997 had arrived and was easily like a you know top three halfback in the game. Since day one at Warriors, he was a shining light and yeah. a gun and probably one of my top five players of all time. 
And it probably took the public another two or three years to accept the fact that he was as good as he was. I think just the out of sight, out of mind thing in New Zealand, plus the kind of Australian superiority of like, you know, downgrading him because, oh, yeah, I mean, he's good for a Kiwi. But um, <laughs> as a guy who's always trying to, you know, prop up international football amongst my friends, you know, it's, oh, yeah, test matches on. Seeing him in the Kiwi squad just gives you that much confidence to it's going to be a game. It was that yeah. good. Yeah. I liked one comparison I saw in the Super League magazine uh, where they said he had a Terry Lamb-like ability as a support player. Yeah, yeah. I really like that comparison. Yeah, Terry Lamb-like physique as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. A couple more neck inches. but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, love Stacey Jones. The last player I want to single out before we move on to the rest of the season was uh, Leona Ryan, who arrived at the Warriors that year. And struggled to, like, you know, cement his spot in first grade, leading to a couple of unfortunate nicknames, uh, one being Loch Ness, I guess, because he was viewed as a myth, and the even better one, Lee Ordinary. <laughs> I mean, so cruel. <laughs> I would hate to be a public figure, I swear oh, to God. Horrible. <laughs> but to his credit, he got it together and ended their season as a regular first grader. So, you know, he got there. Interesting career. He's so well remembered just because of that running race and the yeah. um and the name. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I would go as far to say it's hard to tell a story of rugby league without saying Lee Odenbrun. Yeah, yeah. But you know, from a personal standpoint, beating Martin off fire was possibly the worst thing that could have happened to his career in terms of expectation. Or yeah. conversely, maybe it got him two or three deals that he wouldn't have got otherwise, but it always set him up to fail in some respects. Yeah, everyone's just going, wasn't he running 100 metres every time he gets the ball? (laughs) But the real on-field story for the Warriors was the sacking of John Money, which came midway through the year. In many ways, his cards were marked as soon as Ian Robson, their chief executive, left the club. So Robson was their key ally. Matthew Ridge uh, says that Robson, like, thought Moni was a super coach and was too loyal to him and also hints at some of the off-field disharmony. Um, I'll read this quote. Ian decides to help him out a bit, and me too. Right, he says. Us three sitting here, we're the three. We've got to look after each other. We have to know everything that's going on around here, and we've got to stick together. Ian's like a general under siege. He's contriving to stick together because there are so many people trying to pull him and John apart, and he's roping me in as a reinforcement. I'm thinking... This is weird. Why is he doing this to me? I'm sure no other captain gets dragged into boardroom politics like this. I can't imagine it happening at Manly. (laughs) If we take anything from his writing style, it's I'm thinking or he's thinking. (laughs) So I think it kind of tells you some of the trouble that the Warriors were in that, like, he's right. Like, the captain shouldn't be getting dragged into a boardroom struggle and having his chief executive telling him, you know, we've got to look after each other. I mean... How can you succeed when you've got administration issues like that? Seriously. Yeah. So the end was probably coming pretty quickly, as it duly did. They were wooden spoon contenders for the duration of the season. And as Ian Robson's replacement as CEO said, this was Bill McGowan, he said, people have said all along it was going to take five years to build a club. Our problem has been we've been going down the table, not up. It was totally unacceptable. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you've got to progress and... They started so strong in 1995, missed the finals due to losing two points for too many replacements or whatever. Um, 
but they were going backwards. So kind of a change needed to be made. I just don't get the administrative albatrosses on the game's neck all the time because what do they get out of it? What sort of power can you get from being on a board of a rugby league club? Is it that important? You know, like I get to make the decisions, you know? Yeah. I I don't get it. I don't get why they want to destroy clubs so they can keep their own power in inverted commas. It's, It's not that big a deal. I think sometimes it's just getting in a hole and panicking. And I think that really happened with the first Warriors administration, with Ian Robson in particular, overspending, overcommitting to the dud signings, the, you know, bringing in Andy Platt and letting the Paul brothers go off to England. You know, it's just a bad move. <laughs> but my point is like, you know, if you're not wanted there and like, they want to get rid of you or whatever, is it that important to like bring the club down further or can you just go do something else for a job? Yeah, but uh, in the end, he decided to look for something else and, and left the club. Bill McGowan came in as the replacement CEO, and basically once that happened, Moni's position at the club was always tenuous. He'd lost his key support in the boardroom. The New Zealand public never really warmed to him, and as the bad results continued, the public and the media lost faith, and probably the final nail was the players falling out with him. So... McGowan confirmed this as one of the the key reasons for getting rid of him, saying that um, he'd spoken to the players and they felt frustrated with Moni's style. With a a number of, you know, things behind that, Uh, the firstly was it was viewed that he wasn't one of the boys. So someone in the press had said that they were playing Canberra the year before and Ken Cowley threw a barbecue for their teams uh, in Canberra and... The Canberra players noted that Ian Robson and John Money sat at a table with Tim Sheens the whole night and didn't talk to their players once. And, you know, the Canberra players were taken aback by it, but the Warriors guys were just like, oh, you know, that's just how it is, that they don't know how to mix with us. Well, I mean, I don't really understand, like, why should the coach be one of the boys? Um, in saying that, he, he has got some very walk-like tendencies uh, from afar, <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> And that's the thing, like, Wok wasn't one of the boys, but if you're not going to be one of the boys, you have to have some other qualities. So Wok is the ultimate example. Basically, every player who he coached said, like, he's the biggest prick I've ever met, but, oh, man, what a coach, you know? Like, like think about what a handicap that is to overcome. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Tim Sheens is necessarily one of the boys, but the players can see what he brings and respect him because of it. I think it was one of the boys with the Canberra teams. But, um, yeah, but like Moni, I mean, just his demeanour from my memory of him, that he seemed aloof, you know? Yeah. Like he, yeah. cockshaw would be a word. Yeah. And within the dressing room, there were a lot of angry rants at the players for underperforming, like a lot of shouting halftime speeches. And I really like this from Ridge. He was saying that they'd come into the dressing room at halftime and Moni would bail them out. Whereas Bozo's strategy would be to to come in and say, right, that's the worst half of football I've ever seen us play. Disgusting. And then give the players a mouthful for about 30 seconds, but then change tack and say, okay, this is how we fix it. And like actually give them a strategy for winning the game or coming back. Whereas Moni, mm-hmm. it was just break them down without building them back up. And again, speaking about leadership qualities of Steve Kearney, um, Ridge says that in one game, that happened. Moni came in and dressed them down and Stephen Kearney just snapped and said, well, enough of that shit, man. That's finished. What are we going to do to fix it? And um, to 
take up the ridge quote. Moni says, well, no, Steve. And Kearney comes in, no, we've had it. Come on, man, let's just concentrate on the positives. What are we going to do? And Ridge goes on to say, that's the thing with Moni. He can come in and tell you what you're doing wrong, but he can't tell you what to do to turn the game around and beat them. <laughs> that sounds like a horrific style of coaching. Yeah. Well, the, my favourite was uh, one game that Moni came in and Phil Blake had had a bad game and Moni says to him, Blakey, I've had it with you. You're a coward in front of the whole team. I mean, that's as walk as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> Ridge said that that kind of broke the team. Everyone felt deflated and, you know, like it was just bad vibes. But I love when he goes on to say, the whole team suddenly feels sick and deflated because they all know that Blakey's a great player. Okay, sometimes he's not the bravest in the world. <laughs> like, I, I love that. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, he was a coward, but... You know. <laughs> I mean, he's got a great coaching record, Moni, right? Wigan yeah. and um, Parramatta competition. But the differences between those teams and the Warriors is they were the best teams in the competition with player talent. And the yeah. Warriors were not. You know, yeah. Had Parramatta, had Wigan. So it's a different experience. From what I see from Ridge's account, I'm like, oh, well, well this guy, you know, can't coach. But I don't want to take his account at face value. So, you know, Ridge came out and said that he had no direction and no structure, where in reality it might have just been a different direction and structure than what Ridge wanted. Mm. It's easy to come in and half time and go, Chariots, I want you to score four tries, not three, and then yeah. go, um, <laughs> they come in and say, um, <laughs> Phil Blake, you're a coward. <laughs> but basically, whatever the bona fides of Moni's coaching ability, the team quickly lost faith with them. He fell out with his captain, Ridge, who decided that he was going to start calling the shots on the field. and would, <laughs> well, hang, on, hang on. So you're taking this at face value. So he's decided he's the coach now, right? Yeah. So maybe it would be a bit harsh on Mooney. I think so. I think there's genuinely something there. Ridge was even asked during the year, this was a Rugby League Week article, at the start of the year it appeared to some observers as though he thought he was almost taking over the coaching from John Mooney. Uh, Ridge's response was, it felt like that to me at times. And that's not being disrespectful to John. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's the best. Yeah. And so basically it happened one time on field where Ridge was doing this. Stacey Jones came up to him and just said, what are we supposed to do? Moni's telling us to do one thing. You're telling us to do that. And Ridge says, I'll call the shots out on the field. See, yeah. You want to know why they didn't have any success? Yeah. Yeah. Two um, aloof cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, exactly. So as it turns out, it just wasn't going to work. So Moni was sacked. This was the most cringe. I just, again, this is from Ridge's book, uh, talking about when Moni gets fired. He doesn't make a big, long speech. He just walks in and says, I love my football and I've enjoyed my time here, but the board have seen fit to let me go. So I just want to tell you guys before anyone else tells you, I've got to go. They've made me resign and I'm resigning. Nobody says anything. There's this horrible silence. We all feel sorry for him, but we don't know what to say. It's almost like there's no support there for him. Then John says, thanks, and walks out, and that's it. It's almost like. <laughs> well, the fact that the players got him sacked, um, they weren't going to be um, too vocal or they're in support. Yeah. So Moni's out. Frank Endicott comes in. Frank Endicott, the current New Zealand national coach, who was the Warriors reserve grade coach at the time and got elevated. So a strange situation. 
Yeah. I love this quote. I think this says a lot about his enthusiasm when he was talking about coaching the Warriors in 1997. I got out of bed this morning and told my wife I have the best fucking job in the world. She looked at me as though I was crazy. Just look at the youngsters we have coming through. The 20-year-olds are already proving themselves. What we have to do is survive the next couple of years and the Warriors could be anything. In two or three years, we'll be the most exciting club in the competition. Love that attitude. Love that attitude. Do you know what really struck me, though, when reading that quote? I feel the Warriors had this 15- or 20-year run of being considered two or three years away from being the most <laughs> yeah. exciting team in the competition. But, like, game-wide, we've just all stopped believing. It's, like, it's quite sad. I'm at the point with the Warriors where I think their grand final appearances in those seasons and the runs they had are just being forgotten and disrespected. It's all lumped into, oh, they've never produced. It's like they've never won the big one, but they're hard to win. They've had a couple of really good periods. When they should have had more. Yeah, I don't think you can call them periods is the problem. With that 2002 run, you had Stacey Jones at the peak of his powers and a feeling that they had a, a really good squad and then doesn't happen. 2011, Sean Johnson looked like, you know, he was going to be the next Stacey Jones and then some. Awesome team to watch. It falls away again. And so it's just, I think the fact that they could never sustain it, like, I think that's why no one gives them respect for those runs. Well, they've had a better um, results in Canberra over yep. that period. So, yep. um, and no one talks about them as the great waste. Yep. Have, have made more grand finals than, wait, oh no, sorry. I, I tried to wipe 99 from my memory. So the same amount of grand finals <laughs> as the Dragons in NRL era. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, they've got a whole country. Yes, they've got this great junior base and whatever, and they should be better, but I feel like they get a little bit disrespected for those good periods. Well, I think it all starts with this period. So 1997, wooden spoon candidates for much of the year managed to avoid it, to their credit, but a bad year. And their opening round lineup, so round one, 1997, they had 12 current or former New Zealand internationals plus Dennis Betts from Great Britain. So a literal squad of internationals. And, I mean, maybe that says something about the quality of New Zealand Rugby League, but yeah. it's criminal to have that and spend the whole year anchored to the bottom of the table. Agreed. Then you've got your coach calling your players cowards and you've got a fullback trying to coach them. Yeah. And then on top of that is the biggest issue, which is the complete disintegration of the Warriors' administration. So it had been set up from the start with the various power blocks within the club, the fact that they weren't united in support of Super League, the fact that it was, you know, the club was put together by the clubs of the Auckland Rugby League. Like it was just a bad fit that, you know, this is where it all started to fall apart. So money was a real issue. They were going broke by 1997. Despite turning over $10 million in their first year, they were in distinct danger of going bust. There was a change to New Zealand corporate law, which meant that they had to be registered as a limited liability company and would be deemed insolvent if they didn't get some money together. You don't want solvency brought up in a rugby league club, it's for sure. No. It's, going, <laughs> it's always going to be bad news. <laughs> Dominion Breweries were considering walking away from their 10-year sponsorship, which was tricky also because Brian Blake from DB was on the board. Within the club, there was a feeling they'd been ripped off by Super League. So, you know, they look at 
England that got $200 million for their um, deal and the Warriors were basically bought for a million dollars a season. Graham Lowe, who was in the press a lot, commenting on New Zealand Rugby League, he you know, made the reasonable point that it was completely different. So England, that money was for rights for the entire competition. You know, New Zealand was a different situation, which is a reasonable point, but it still seems like they were bought cheap. Yeah. Well, whose fault is that then? Yeah. Well, I think it's that initial board, which, you know, they were all kind of moved on with Robson leaving, you know, Graham Carden at the New Zealand Rugby League had left and Robson like got a lot of the blame pinned on him for overspending. And this led to increased tension with the Super League side of things. The fact that Robson leaves the Warriors, gets a cushy job with Super League administration in Sydney. There was a feeling that the Super League era had led to all this overspending and they weren't getting the support from Super League when it all went to shit. Well, it's like any organisation, you know, incompetence tends to fail upwards, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Why would Rugby League be any different? Yeah. And so in the midst of all this, there was a push for privatisation. So News Limited were very vocal in their belief that the clubs should be privately owned and I think there was always an idea that the News Limited ownership of the clubs was a temporary solution. And, you know, once the profits started pouring in as everyone fell in love with the sizzle, there'd be, you know, millions of buyers who would be snapping up these valuable clubs, (laughs) which isn't how it turned out. But there was a privatisation attempt for the Warriors in 1995. This was headed by Graham Lowe as, I guess, the spokesman and public face of it. Dean Lonigan, a former New Zealand player who was on the board at the Warriors, was part of that. They had a New Zealand PR guy. And the money man, which was a um, guy named Roger Bathnagar, who was an Indian-born businessman who was keen to get involved with sport. He'd been more involved with rugby union and cricket, but this was a chance for him. And he brought the capital. What a wonderful opportunity for the man to come yeah. in and uh, incinerate <laughs> cash. But... I love this quote from Graham Lowe. I think this is so illustrative of the whole thing, talking about Roger Bathnagar being involved. With his support, we're in place now. There aren't too many people in the world who can say, we'll have $4 million ready within four weeks. If you're my money man, man United, I want you to I want you to find four million dollars under your couch cushion. (laughs) I think it was a different situation because at the time he did have substantially more money than four million. But the way the rugby league community collectively like fell over themselves to get Nathan (laughs) Tinkler involved in the game. (laughs) But so Graham Lowe wasn't universally loved within the New Zealand rugby league scene. There was a a feeling that he was too outspoken. He'd interfere with things. He, you know, had an outsized belief in his own importance to New Zealand rugby league. Well, the guy's a knight now, so who has the last laugh? Yeah. (laughs) The Warriors in particular thought that he was too closely linked to News Limited, both having a weekly column in Super League magazine being one of the main commentators on Warriors games. And with that Super League column, like quite a few times over the course of the year, he uses that column to push the barrow of privatization and his involvement in it. So I think you can really see like 
there's something to that push from News Limited to, you know, give him some space and, and try to sell the case. Think about how much the game has improved when, like, columns went out of fashion yeah. on the internet. Yeah. It's been so much better. Yeah. But, I, I mean, this Super League magazine, like, took it to another level. You know, between, like, Graham Lowe's agenda pushing, the Debbie Spillane <laughs> PR blitz, I think the best of them by far was Peter Jackson's column, which we've referenced before. We will reference it again. Like, that was, like... That was pure. That was a brilliant column. But um, Jacko for me is on the Mount Rushmore of natural talents. Him, yeah. Fatty, and Ridgie. Yep. Pure, authentic charisma. Yeah, absolutely. As it turns out, Lowe's efforts in Super League magazine were for nothing because the Auckland block voted overwhelmingly to reject the privatization proposal. So uh, Selwyn Bennett, who was the boss of the Auckland Rugby League, said the sale argument is now out of the mix. We're going to sit back and see if the Warriors management can deliver. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, out of three magic beans in a rugby league club, three magic beans is better because you're not going to get like further losses. I like that analogy. And that leads me to what happened to you know the Warriors over the next few years. So Graham Lowe eventually got his way because a year later, the Warriors were sold. They did go private and the owners were a consortium called the Rugby League People. So Graham Lowe was a minority owner in that and a board member. But it was basically the Tainui tribe who were Auckland-based Maori community who had received a settlement. I didn't go too far into the history, but it all went back to the Treaty of Waitangi in the 1800s. But anyway, at this point in time, they got some money which they were using to invest in businesses and it it was just really sad reading the wikipedia entry for the tribe and what happened with their money sad for them but even sadder for rugby league's place in society this quote at first many of the investments made were poor such as a fisheries deal the purchase of the auckland warriors rugby league team and a hotel in singapore which all (laughs) failed who the hell was their advisor saying buy the auckland warriors (laughs) But that tells you basically how it went down. So by 2000, it was all turning bad. So Graham Lowe was forced off the board. He lost his investment in the organisation. The Tainui Management Company went into liquidation, which meant that new owners were required. And this is where Eric Watson stepped in. So he was given some help by the NRL, who kind of softened the blow, like all the Warriors contracts were voided and a new entity was created. And so that is why the Auckland Warriors then became a new organisation called the New Zealand Warriors. Oh, right. Is that why? Yeah. Um, that was a period of relative stability with Watson because he had a billion dollars, right? So you can, yeah. you can have it as a hobby then. Like yeah. Rusty, you don't mind if you lose money. It's um, a labour of love. Yeah. And he had a long run of that being true. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't stay true. So he was severely embattled financially, uh, went bankrupt, had to sell the club in 2019. The next year spent four months in an English jail for contempt. And as we speak now, he's got some insider trading charges against him in the US. And if not quite on the run, he won't be entering the US anytime soon and is believed to be living in Ibiza. Wow. It went from Graham Carden to... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. It's been a a rough run. But uh, just to finish this chapter, 
when the New Zealand Warriors were created, they were created as a new entity, which meant that all player contracts were voided and the players on the books at the Warriors had to renegotiate their deals. And one of the key figures assisting in this was one Matthew Ridge, who was added to the new Warriors board and was deeply involved in contract negotiations. The amount we talk about them, we should do a bit more research on what makes up a rugby league board, but having a, a maverick with no regard for rules, I don't know if that's the right idea. Well, <laughs> I think he was the right man for the job in ways that may be surprising. So in Will Evans' great book, which is The History of the Warriors, uh, he wrote this of Ridge's negotiations. Eric Watson, Mick Watson, Ridge and Daniel Anderson scrambled to sign Warriors players, most of whom were in England for the World Cup, to new contracts. Ridge's involvement and hardline approach to negotiations rankled with the Warriors players, given his point-blank refusal to consider a pay cut when he was their teammate. (laughs) (laughs) To me, that is such a brilliant culmination of the Matthew Ridge Super League arc. (laughs) You know, arriving at the Warriors as this ultimate shit-stirrer, standing up to board members, you know, refusing to take pay cuts or compromise in any way, retiring, immediately being added to the board and going out of his way to, like, undercut the player's contract. You know, for a fact, he wouldn't even consider that to be any sort of hypocrisy. Be no. <laughs> I'm, I mean, they're thinking I'm doing something wrong, but I'm, I'm trying to help them. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so that is where it ends for Matthew Ridge at the Warriors, and that is where it ends for this episode. So this is part one of what is going to be a very juicy chapter. I'm I'm really excited for some of the storylines we have coming up over the next few episodes, which will culminate eventually in the Broncos holding aloft the Telstra Cup. So we've got a lot to look forward to over the next few weeks. Um, But thank you all for listening and uh, let us know your thoughts. Matthew Ridge, Hall of Famer for a start. We can settle that one hopefully. The stories in that were amazing. Like rugby league, the greatest soap opera on earth, bar none. I know. I think next week's soap opera will be even better. So um, you can look forward to that and we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo.